Romans 8, verse number 18. I want to preach to you this morning a sermon entitled, Three Hard Truths for Our Hard Times. Three Hard Truths for Our Hard Times. Verse number 18, the Bible says, and this is, how you, this is why I like Paul so much. This is how you know he's a, a fellow with a little southern blood in him. Verse number 18, for I reckon, I reckon's not a Yankee word, I'm pretty sure. But Paul, he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, listen to this, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For a man, uh, for a man seeth, uh, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Heavenly Father, please bless. In the brief time that we have this morning, I ask, Lord, that You would do this in the name of Your precious and powerful Son, Jesus. Amen. God is always good. But sometimes times are hard. Yesterday we went on a youth activity with... Uh, a few of the teenagers, my wife and I, were able to go. We were able to pawn the kids off on my parents, so we didn't have them. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, Brother Kevin and Miss Kim were there, and uh, we, we decided to take a trip to the Glen Rose State Park. That's the Dinosaur Valley State Park, I believe. And uh, it just so happens when we pulled up to the gate to kind of pay for everybody, the lady said, well, we're having a hunting expo today, so uh, there's no need to pay. And I looked at Kevin Gerald, and I said, what a great day to go to the park, amen. Man, this worked out good. So we pulled in, we parked, we got to the... Uh, uh, a parking lot area, we walked over to the expo, and, and I, I kind of knew something was a little bit off when I told Kevin, I said, tell y'all what, y'all want to go hiking, y'all start on the trail, I'll just get on the trail and catch up to you. And Kevin kind of looked at me and goes, 
No, that's not going to happen. I knew something was up. My idea of the park, well, I'll tell you what my idea is. I took a Frisbee. That's my idea of the park. You know, we had a football. Ethan Gerald brought it. I thought we were going to throw the Frisbee, throw the football, and uh, we'll have a good time at the park. But park could not be more opposite of what we did yesterday. We did not park at all. In fact, we were in gear the entire day. We go to the Hunt and Expo for a little bit because they wanted to allow me the privilege of doing that. So we walked around there for maybe 10 minutes. And then we started down this trail. Let me tell you what I'm dressed like, okay? I, I went in Crocs. Uh, I went hiking in Crocs. I knew something was up when, when Kevin showed up in his hiking boots. Anyway, we had a good time yesterday, and uh, we, after we walked, I think the trail was uh, just under four miles is what we walked, uh, and the elevation changed there in Glen Rose. It was actually a lot of fun. Uh, you know how it gets better as it gets further away in your memory, so I'm hoping that by next week it'll be really fun. Um, but, uh, it, no, it was a good time. We had, we had a lot of fun, a lot of good conversations shared with one another. Uh, and, and, and we saw some funny stuff along the way. But uh, nonetheless, we, we, after we got done with this day in and, and the heat, we were all exhausted. We were, you know, sweating. We were just worn out. We go to Dairy Queen. We get some blizzards and some ice cream and some, uh, you know, because nothing settles the stomach like dairy out of the heat. But anyway, it was wonderful. And uh, so we, we go to Dairy Queen, and we're all sitting down there, and Miss Kim was, out of all of us, probably most mad about this venture that we have gone on. And Miss Kim looks at her husband and says, I just wish that I had known what I was getting into. <laughs> and my wife quickly and abruptly said, no, if I had known, I would have never gone. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, is that not the way? How, how many of us this morning have ever been through a hard time in our life where we were in the middle of it and we realized that if we had known what we were getting into, we would have never started down that path? Amen. Certainly that's been the case in my life. And we face hard times. But this morning in our passage, what we're going to look at is three hard truths to face when we are in those hard times. Number one, the first hard truth we'll face is this. Christians are not exempt from hard times. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing here in the book of Romans. And if anybody knew about suffering, it was Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I speak as a fool, but I am more than anyone in labors more abundant, in stripes above measures, in prisons more frequent, in deaths more often. Of the Jews, five times received I uh, forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, uh, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. That's a lot of perils, amen? In perils in the sea, in the perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. If anybody knew about suffering, Paul knew about suffering. And in verse 18 of chapter 9, or chapter 8, I'm sorry, in verse 18, he says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world 
you have to realize is the reality is every Christian will face suffering. That's the reality. There's no way out of it. And you say, well, Paul went through a lot, but really did he have that much to complain about? Yeah, Paul was hit on just about every physical, emotional, and spiritual level. But one thing that Paul always struggled with was what he called a thorn in his flesh. He, he termed it as a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Something that always stuck around. You know, you can recover from a shipwreck. Been there, done that. Amen, church. Uh, you can get over some beatings every once in a while. But, but Paul says, I lived with this thing constantly. And I besought the Lord three different times that he would take it away from me, but he never would. And he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now, some people have supposed that that was poor eyesight. I I don't really know. We don't have enough biblical evidence to know what it was. But I know that Paul had something on a day-to-day basis that pained him, and he suffered because of it. Christian, you have something that you struggle with on a day-to-day basis. I, I, I just know as... As I age and I see those around me age, it seems like suffering becomes more a part of life. Uh, for instance, my father, he, he, he used to be the, the guy that everybody looked at and said, man, he, he could take me. You know, he's 50 years old. Now, every single day of my father's life, he deals with a pain somewhere in his body. Suffering. This present world is full of suffering. And every Christian has to realize you're going to suffer. Even Jesus suffered on many different levels. You know, Jesus suffered what it felt like to feel the loss of a friend. Remember when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he realizes that Lazarus is dead? What does the Bible say he does? It's the shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. This morning, there's, I, without a doubt, in a crowd this big, there's someone who's lost a friend or a family member recently, and it hurts. Suffering. You know, uh, Jesus actually felt the betrayal of a friend, did he not? Judas was within the inner circle of Jesus. He was one of the 12 closest disciples. Judas went to every campfire meeting with Jesus. Judas was there at every healing. Jesus saw Judas. Judas saw Jesus. They talked with one another, and yet Judas betrayed his friend Jesus. You ever been betrayed by someone you thought should have been more loyal to you? Well, certainly. Jesus knows what that feels like. And and I'm just saying this morning, if Jesus had to go through it, there's a good chance you're going to have to go through it. Jesus felt more physical suffering than anybody that's ever walked this earth when he hung on Calvary. He knows what physical pain feels like. And that's why I'm so glad that the Bible says, For we have not a great high priest which cannot be uh, touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in every point tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. You see, Jesus faced everything you'll ever have to face on this earth in his brief time here. He knows what you're going through. The reality is every Christian will suffer. We're not exempt from it. Here's the reason for it, though. So often we misapply our blame. Notice in verse number 20 what the Bible says. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Paul 
here personifies the creature and creation as being one. For instance, in verse 22, we find him saying something similar to this. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And it's like Paul paints this broad cartoonish world. And I don't want that to sound bad, but he puts the lion and he puts the, the lamb and he puts the world, the whole scope of creation, Paul puts it as one character and gives it feelings and emotions and intellect. And he says this creation was made subject to vanity. The word vanity there means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. You see, when God created the world, He created it perfect. In fact, God says in, in, in chapter number 1, after He creates all the world, all the creatures, everything therein, at the end of the sixth day, He steps back from His creation and He doesn't just say, it is good. You know what He says? It is very good. You know, there's a difference between good and very good. I used to be good at basketball. I was never very good at basketball. There's a difference. I used to be good at a lot of things, or so my mind likes to tell me. The other day, Brother Sean was saying, man, I wish I could find some old game tape of me playing football. And you know what I told him? I said, Sean, just let your mind think you were good. Because the reality is I found a game tape of me the other day. I watched it and cried myself to sleep that night. <laughs> you know, there's a big difference between good and very good. And when God created the world, he said it was very Amen. good. In fact, I believe you can even look at, at an Old Testament prophecy and figure out what the mind of God was, not only for the, the consummation of it all, for the completion of the world, but I believe this is what happened at the creation of the world. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, I don't understand all what that means, but here's what I think it means. Before this world ever experienced the introduction of sin, there was no death at all. And we always apply that to us, you know. Uh, we say, well, we die because we sin, but the, the reality is... Adam and Eve didn't know what death was, so there's a good chance they had never seen a lion in the carcass of a lamb. There was no death. I believe you could even study your Bible and find out that there's a very high probability that there was no enemies in God's perfect creation. You say, how does all this matter? It matters because when the hard times come in our life, you know who the first person we blame is? God. 
We look at him as the ultimate boss of everything. We say, you're sovereign, you know all, you can do all. Then why can't you fix my problem? And we lay the blame at his feet. But the reality is, God's creation was perfect. We would have never faced death. We would have never faced separation. We would never face uh, uh, problems and hard times in God's perfect creation. But do you want to know a secret this morning? It was not God who screwed that environment up. For whereas by one man sin entered into the world, so death by sin, so death passed upon all men. The introduction of everything evil in this world was caused by our father Adam. And before we lay too much blame at his feet, if it had been Andrew in that garden, he'd have probably screwed up too. We oftentimes lay the blame of our hard times at God's feet, but we are misplacing the blame. God doesn't deserve it. The other day I was driving down the road coming back uh, uh, from out of town and I had my truck and I had a trailer and I had quite a bit of weight on that trailer driving down some country back roads at night and I see a police officer pass by and I wasn't too familiar with the area. I wasn't too familiar with the road. So I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I was following a car. So I figured I was okay. And uh, uh, I see this path, the, the police officer pass right by me. And man, as soon as he goes by, he whips it around and he pulls right in behind me, throws on the blue lights. And I said, quick, Sean, hide the beer. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. He didn't have to hide it. He'd already drunk it all. (laughs) Now, there we are. And I I had no idea why we were being pulled over. None whatsoever. So I throw my blinker on as country roads. So there was not a shoulder necessarily to speak of. And we pull over in probably mirror high Johnson grass. Because that's the only place I could find to pull over. And I've got this truck and trailer. And we're pulled over on the side of the road. A country dark area. And the police officer comes to the window. He says, uh, I pulled you over tonight because you had your brights on. And I said, okay. And I look down at my console. And my brights aren't on. And... I don't, you know, I've noticed in my short life that uh, arguing with authority rarely works because I've done it a bunch and it never succeeded. (laughs) You ever seen many referees change their calls? Not often. (laughs) So I I wasn't trying to argue with the officer, but, but I said, well, sir, from the time that I saw you to the time that you're here at my window now, I never turned them off because I didn't know they were on. All I did was I used my blinker to get over into the grass here. And I mean, if they're not on now, I don't think they were on before. And he said, no, they were. They were on because when I came over that hill, they shined in my eyes and I could barely see. So I said, okay, well, I'm sorry if that's the case. He goes on. He was a nice guy. Uh, he, he, He went back to his car and and uh, he didn't even write me a warning, came back and said, just watch that as you go through and make sure you keep them off. And I remember how it felt to be blamed for something that I just didn't do. I knew I was right. I hadn't touched my brights. I came into the office the next day and began to ask my dad, why would he think that my brights were on? And he said, well, Andrew, if you had a trailer on the back of your truck, 
it was weighing the back of your truck down and your lights were up so it appeared you had your high beams on. I said, Dad, man, I wish you were there. You could have showed that cop up. <laughs> I didn't say that, but, but looking back on it, I knew that I was right. And I knew I was being blamed for something that I did not do. Certainly that's the way that God must feel. When we lay the blame for our hard times at His feet, it was never His plan for us to suffer. It was never His plan for this world to be the way that it is. All these so-called religious experts that want to question God on the basis of His goodness because bad things happen in this world, let me tell you, they do not understand the goodness of our God and the depths of that goodness. They're questioning the only person in this world that is always at all times and in every place good, and that is God. Look, the hard times in your life, there is a reason for them. And it is not God's fault. The reality is every Christian must go through hard times. The reason for them is not always what you think. Most of the time it's not God's fault. I want you to notice though, number three, the redemption from these problems. Verse number 18. And this is certainly the theme of this passage. Paul refers to these hard times, these struggles that we're going to have to face And then he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present world, this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul certainly knew about struggle. Paul certainly knew about pain and separation and all the effects that sin had implemented in this world. But you know what else Paul knew in the back of his mind and kind of bubbling out of his heart as he's writing these words? He knew that this was not the end. He knew that this is not the best times. He knew that someday soon Jesus would be coming back for him. And he says, oh, the struggle is real, friend. You're going to face it. But the reality is Jesus is coming back. And he says, it does not appear yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be made like him. Paul didn't understand it all. And I tell you right now, I don't understand it all. But the reality is Jesus is coming again. And he's going to fix a whole lot of wrong that's in this world when he comes. It's like the uh, hymn writer wrote, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Just one glimpse at His dear face. All sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. That's what Paul's writing about. That's what he understood. He said, you're going to face the hard times, but the hard times can't overwhelm you because in the back of your mind and in the bottom depths of your heart, you've got to look forward to the day when Jesus will fix every problem you'll ever face. Jesus is coming again and we'll be relieved from this world. We'll be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that day is going to be a great day for the Christian. 
The first hard truth that a Christian must realize is you are not exempt from hard times. The second hard truth that you must face is prayer can get hard in these times. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, I I mean this. Prayer seems at this moment when we're not in the heat of battle, the obvious choice. I mean, if you have God at your every beck and call and you can go to him anytime and we can boldly approach the throne of grace anytime that we want, it makes a lot of logical sense that we should go to God in the time when we are hurting the most. But I'll tell you right now, based on my experience, it is not always easy to go to God in those times. I believe that's why the Bible even tells us in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Did you know that even when you're not praying, the Spirit of God is praying for you and Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God praying for you? Even when you're not? The Bible goes on to say, how is he praying? With groanings which cannot be uttered. And he searcheth the heart. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. There are hard times in the Christian life when burdens are larger than your vocabulary. And when the prayer that you would pray on a daily basis for your friend, your family members, and those that are hurting in your life does not seem sufficient for the trial at hand. And I've been there, friend. I know what it is to pray a prayer that you feel is completely ineffective based upon the, the largeness of the matter. It's easy to pray when it's for our friend. You know, when our family member's going through a hard time or they need help, what do we always say? We go to their side and we say, hey, I'll pray for you. Almost flippantly because it's such an easy prayer to pray. But when trial and peril strikes us, and our whole world is flipped upside down, those prayers that once came so casually and easy no longer come so easy. And before you even kneel, you feel your heart breaking. And you feel that no matter what words you come up with, no matter how magnificent your vocabulary is, the words of the English language would not be sufficient to communicate to God what you are feeling. Prayer can get hard at these times. I remember the day my daughter Caitlin was born. Boy, I I was so excited. You know, I always told myself I wasn't going to become one of those dads, but I tell you, I was the prototypical one of those dads that day. You know, one of those dads that just gushes over their kid being the best that's ever been born. I was that guy, and I hate that I was. When she was born, uh, I think I've told you this story before, but there was a little girl, a TCU technician. She was 
uh, this was her first birth to ever experience. And she was in there training, and she just stood in the corner of the room. There she was in her purple scrubs, you know, and TCU decked out all in it. And, and she's, she's a nice little girl. We, we, I'd been joking all day, you know. And, and, and so uh, I looked at her, and, and the birth had just happened, and I said, I am so sorry. And she says, why? I said, because you just witnessed the birth of the best child that you'll ever witness. I mean, it is literally all downhill from here for you. You know, they were laughing. I remember looking in the face of my daughter, and man, she was just so beautiful. All you people that had told me that kids were ugly when they were born, maybe yours was. You know, some of y'all look like they starred in the movie Coneheads. That was not Caitlin. You know, some of their faces are smushed. That was not Caitlin. Caitlin looked like she belonged on a Gerber ad before she ever was bathed. She was beautiful. And I had never seen beauty like that. Our friends uh, would come up from church, you know, and, and they would, oh, how'd it go? How's everything? And I'd like, just look at her. Have you ever seen anything like that? I mean, I know you've had kids, but your kids didn't look like that. Your kids still are ugly. They surely could have started out like this. Man, I was just so excited. And anybody that would give me an ear, I was bragging on them. I tell you what, I was not hurting for words that day. But a year and 15 days earlier, I was struggling for words. See, That's when the doctor looked at us, me and my wife, and told me, Use this word, and and since this word has been used in this setting, I've never used it again. I actually detest the word. The doctor looked at us and said, it is inevitable you will lose your daughter. Now, when Caitlin was born, I was ecstatic. And I had plenty of words to say, but when Haley was born, there were no words. My wife and I could not speak to one another because we were so hurt. But the Spirit knew. The Spirit knew. It's like a thermometer that was being thrust into my heart and only he could see the reading. And on the outside, I may have appeared strong. On the outside, everybody would say, man, you're handling this well. On the outside, I was trying to do my best to show everybody that I'm okay. But on the inside, I was a wreck. The Spirit knew. And I do not care what it is you were going through this morning. He knows. And because He knows, God knows. Prayer can get hard at these times when you kneel by your bed and before you even get a word out, you begin to crack. And and you cannot verbalize what is going on because the, the matter is so much bigger than you. But you know you need God's help. And it is at these times when the Holy Spirit of God, and I, I if of all the things in the Bible, I do not understand this. 
the Spirit of God basically takes a sample of what's going on in your heart and delivers it to the throne of God. And somehow in this magnificent process, God intervenes as the Spirit intercedes. I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter if you have the vocabulary or not, the Holy Spirit of God has never been short on words when it comes to describing what you're going through to God. Number one, Christians are not exempt from hard times. Number two is that we uh, must realize that prayer can be hard during these times. Number three, and this is so important for you to understand this morning, God is working no matter how hard the times seem. Look in verse number 28. The Bible says... And we know, well, how do we know? Based upon everything that we've just covered, in the moment, in the middle of our struggle, we can rest assured that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I want you to see quickly this morning, It is exhaustive. This promise is exhaustive in its scope. Look at verse 28. I want to show you where I get that. And we know that... What's the next two words there? All things. things. Let's do that again. And we know that... What's the next two words? All All things. It is exhaustive in its scope. If you have a piece of paper in your lap or near you this morning, I want you to take a pen... And if you don't, you can do this exercise in your mind. But I need every person in the room to do it, okay? If you have a pen and paper, that's ideal. I want you to put two numbers on the side, one and two. At the first number, next to the number one, I want you to put the hardest struggle you have ever had to go through in your entire life. It doesn't matter what point in time, let's try to uh, be discreet or let's be uh, conscientious about not looking at other people's papers. I mean, it's not a cheating type deal. So just um, help the privacy here. Don't look at other pieces of paper. You look at their, your piece of paper. What's the hardest thing that you've ever had to go through? Maybe it was the loss of your father. Maybe it was the loss of your brother. Maybe it was the loss of a child. Maybe it was a time of financial crisis where you were laid off. You didn't know what to do. What's the hardest thing that you've ever had to go through? Now next to number two, I want you to put, what's the hardest thing that you've ever seen a friend or family member go through right now? At this current moment, either you, a friend, or a family member is going through a very difficult time. While we were in North Carolina, there was a young girl who sang Sunday night Uh, They were having a camp meeting, so they had church Sunday night, uh, Monday, Tuesday evening, and we were there for Monday and Tuesday evening. Sunday night, she sang, I Stand Redeemed with her husband. It was fantastic, a good song. She's about early 30s, a a pretty girl, and she was singing, man, it was just good. It was a help to the service, super, it was just very good. A a nice-looking young couple. By Tuesday night, the report had come back that she had stage 3 cancer. She had no idea. What's the hardest thing that you, your friends, or family members are going through right now? Let me tell you this. 
whatever is on your paper, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad, how awful, whatever it is. And I have not seen every paper. I have no idea what you've written. No matter what you wrote, listen to me carefully. It's just one of those things. And you say, how dare you? Be so flippant about my struggle. No, no, listen to me. Verse number 28 says, all things. So you know what's on your paper? (laughs) Just one of those things. We use that term lightly. We say, oh, it's just one of those things. But from now on, when people come up to me and tell me that they need prayer, you know what I'm going to say to them? (laughs) It's just one of those things. You know why? Because the Bible says all things work together for good. It is exhaustive in its scope. Listen to me. It does not matter what's on your paper. God is working. There is nothing that His hand is not actively engaged in. God is working in your issue. Your hard time, God is moving. It is exhaustive in its scope. I want you to see number two. It is positive in His sight. Verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for, what's the next word there? Good. (laughs) I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's on your paper. But whatever it is, I can promise you this. The end goal of it is for good in God's eyes. God wants to help. God wants to be a part. But the end goal of every hard time that you face, somehow God takes something that is a problem caused by sin and makes it a blessing given by Him. I don't understand it all, but but God says all things, no matter what you're going through, works together for good. It is positive in His sight. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Whatever you're going through, you, you, there might be a level of suffering right now, But the end goal of it in God's eyes is He will strengthen and establish and help you and He'll do it for your good and His glory. The other day I met one of our local preachers and I had been hearing very good things about what God's doing in that church. and That's actually good when I hear another church doing well in our area. That's a blessing. And so uh, I uh, shook this man's hand. I said, man, I hear good things really happened uh, at the church here lately. And he says, God has been good. And when he said it, it struck me. It's certainly God has been good, but it was almost as if it was qualified. When, when he said it, it just didn't sit right because he says, God has been good based upon the results that you've been hearing. No, 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 no. Listen to me. God is good all the time. Whether your church is seeing folks saved, whether it's nobody's in the church house, God is good. His goodness is not qualified based upon our perception of what he's doing in our life. God is good. The Bible says... For the Lord is good. Over 60 times God or Christ is referred to 
as good in the Bible, God is good. And Christian, you can rest assured that no matter the struggle, no matter the hard time, whether your husband's sick and in the hospital, whether you've got bratty kids, and I can throw myself in that group, it does not matter. God is good. And somehow in the course of your life, he is working this hard time to be a blessing to his good and, your, and his glory. I don't understand hard times, but I'll tell you this, hard times strengthen the Christian. But when we face these hard times, there's a real danger because it'll either harden us or help us. If you're going through something this morning, if you reject this truth of the Bible, that God is somehow working in your life, You know what it's going to do? It's going to harden your heart towards Him. You're not going to give Him credit for any benefit that comes out of it. That girl I referred to earlier at Amy's old church, and and the church had prayer for her that night. I've prayed for her several times since then. What a sad thing. I think she's got three little children that that, that are there. And man, we've been praying for her. And and on the way home, Amy said, you know what? I, would, I, I hope that God just takes it away at her next appointment. And I said, well, I mean, that would be great if he does that. But if God somehow uses chemotherapy, it's still God. It's like when doctors get involved, we take the credit away from God. We pray that God will heal him. And, and then when God does use somehow medical means, it's like we give credit to Dr. So-and-so when God is the one who dictates what happens to your body. Well, I told her, I said, if chemotherapy can heal her, great, I'll give the credit to God. But if you reject this truth, that God is somehow working in your life, it will harden you. But if you'll accept that no matter how desperate you feel at this current moment, or no matter how bad of an issue is happening in your friend or your family's life, No matter if you'll trust that God somehow is working for good, it'll help you. It's your choice.